Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, the science correspondent, and I'm talking today with my counterpart Tim Cross and Karampreet Bahia, our Richard Caseman intern, the bright young things we bring in every summer. In this episode, we'll dig deep into the genome of the octopus in a bid to find out what makes them so clever. And we'll discuss why absolute anonymity in the era of big data might be impossible. But first, Karampreet, you've dug up a story about the California two-spot octopus whose genome is published this week. There, we're in an era now where genomes have been published for lots and lots and lots of animals. Why, why should we care about this one? Right. So the reason that the octopus one is particularly interesting, Jason, is that cephalopods are a class of animals of which octopuses are one member. And they're the only ones aside from vertebrates which look to be particularly intelligent. And this intelligence has evolved completely distinctly from that in vertebrates. And what that means is that we have a completely separate case study to see how intelligence can evolve on a molecular basis. So on what evidence do we have it that they're particularly intelligent? So aside from some anecdotal things we have with, say, Paul the Octopus from the World Cup, we have some more... um, I lost some money on him, you know. Oh, did you? (laughs) Can I just butt in here as someone who doesn't... Tim. Who who was Paul the Octopus exactly? So we had the FIFA World Cup in 2010 in which there was an octopus who got an 85% success rate. in oh, actually the octopus, yeah. Uh, but aside from this anecdotal evidence, we also can observe them when they're crossing the ocean floor carrying such things as coconut shells from which they're able to assemble shelters, for example. And we've been able to test their intelligence in the laboratory and we've found that what they have is intelligence which is comparable to that, say, of a small mammal. Wasn't the one test where they figured out how to unscrew the lid of a jam jar, something like that? That's yes, in my mind. they have been tested to see if that can happen and I think the jam jar one was, it tended towards suggesting they can actually learn those kind of behaviours. But these are different for octopuses relative to other cephalopods like squid and cuttlefish or no? So the cephalopod uh, class of species in general does seem to be more intelligent than any other mollusk, which is the sort of big overarching family that you, we have in general. You'd, th- you'd think they'd be smarter than clams or something. Yeah. yeah. So then what are we seeing in, in the genome? What, what secrets are revealed this week? So what they've looked into is a wide range of gene families of which they found that two in particular have been expanded. So there's many more copies of two types of genes in comparison to other mollusks. So what we have is one type called protocoderins, and these look to be quite interesting because they allow a complex nervous system to develop. They're very important in actually guiding the development of neurons, which are brain and nervous system cells. This particular family of genes is only otherwise known to be expanded in vertebrates. So it looks like the octopus and other cephalopod species have actually converged with the evolution of vertebrates completely separately. Octopuses kind of don't have the same nervous system structure as the rest of the cephalopods, right? They have sort of distributed systems, isn't that right? Yeah, that's completely correct. So what we find is that octopuses are the closest thing we can find to alien intelligence in a way, even compared to vertebrates and human beings, say. Two-thirds, roughly, of all of their neurons are actually found in their arms as opposed to in their brains. So they don't have a centralised brain. They have lots of little neurons spread around their body that all somehow adds up to this weird distributed brain. 
Yes. And, and they get accused of just, just thinking with their tentacles. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, they almost do think with their tentacles. And the very sensitive tentacles they have and the suction cups are you know, very sophisticated. And even in that, they can chemically almost smell. It's the best analogy. And, and so, there, so there's hints in, in the genome as to how that came about? Yes. Yeah, so the proto-Cadiran gene will have actually allowed the nervous system to have become expanded in the first place. But that doesn't actually explain why it would have evolved at the moment in the arms and be very distributed across the body as opposed to all being centred in the brain. So still lots to learn from these genomes, great secrets to be, to be found out as yet. There's much to find out at the moment about exactly how it works, what the proteins encoded by the genes actually do specifically, and a lot more to find out about other genomes among cephalopods. Excellent. We'll keep an eye out. Karenpreet, thanks very much for that. Uh, now, Tim, we'll move on to big data and open data and how that crashes into the idea of, of anonymity. Listeners may have heard stories about uh, the releases of anonymous data, for instance, from the New York City limousine and taxi service that helped data scientists figure out who's going to various naughty clubs or which celebrities were taking which trips and tipping how much and so on. Tim, there's lots of these kinds of stories around, and they all seem to hinge on this notion of people thinking they're anonymous and then finding out after the fact that they're not. Yeah, that's right. People emit data all the time these days. We carry around these effectively personalised tracking devices in the form of our mobile phones that you know use satellites to track our position at all times. When you log onto some kind of internet service, you leave a little bit of data behind you. We basically just sort of shed data the same way we shed skin cells. It kind of gets everywhere in places that you wouldn't expect to find it. Um, a lot of the time, people try and reassure you, and especially when you're filling out a form, you know, people try and reassure you and they say, well, we'll collect this data but we'll anonymize it. And before we use it for all kinds of useful things, like in the case of New York, as you mentioned it, the New York authorities, city authorities, they want this data because they need to figure out how people move around the city. If you're going to plug a plan a public transport system, this is the kind of thing you need to know. So the usual trade-off is give us your data, but we'll scrub it of any personal details. So we won't, you know, when we use it and when we release it to other people who might want to use it, we won't include things like your name or where you live or your height, what you look like, pictures, all that kind of stuff. You'll just be this nice anonymous number in a computer system that nobody can tie back to an actual real person. The problem is that kind of doesn't always work in practice. But how, how might that not work if, if all of the relevant personal details are removed? How do you track that back to me? Well, so there was a nice example recently where a postdoc called Anthony Tocca, who works for a company called Newstar, he got hold of that New York data that we were talking about before. And he managed to do a couple of fun things with it. So what it shows you is the start point and end point of all the taxi rides taken in New York at a particular time. So the first thing he decided to do was see if he could do some celeb spotting. So he looked around, he did a Google image search for pictures of celebs getting in cabs in New York. And these things are often timestamped. So you look at the timestamp, and then you go back to your big list of taxi data. And you can find out, for example, that on a certain date, Jessica Alba got in a cab and went a few streets along and paid the taxi guy $9 and didn't tip him. The next thing he did was a bit more worrying. He noticed that, um, so Larry Flint, who's a big American porn mogul, has a strip club in New York in Hell's Kitchen. And he thought, well, okay, this thing's sort of off by itself. You can maybe imagine that a lot of people hire taxis from Larry Flint's strip club at the wee hours of the morning, right? And there's not really many other reasons for taxis to be in that area. So he got all the data and he had a look at all these taxi trips that were starting at the strip club and just looked to see where they went. Now, on a single night, that probably doesn't tell you very much. But if you run that query again and again every day for, you know, so you've covered like a week or a month or six months, you can get a pretty good idea of who the sort of best customers of Larry Flint's strip club are. And, and where they live. And where they live, right. And again, that might not sound too bad, except that he then went to all sorts of other public forms of 
data, so you know, things like Facebook, social networks, and all the rest, and was able to tie these people and their rough addresses to, in some cases, even pictures of them. So, you know, well, I guess that's kind of the point: is this sort of auxiliary data, extra bits that that are out there? It's not just the data set itself; it's that what you can sort of cross-reference against, and so on. But when you, when you hear these stories, though, there's always this, this sort of argument then in the literature about, well, this particular data set was some low-hanging fruit because it was poorly anonymized or because it was a limited set or because it was a, a bunch of reasons that sort of speak to, well, they, they, you know, this isn't a broad problem. It's sort of a limited problem. Yeah. I mean, so this stuff is all very specific. And if your wife suspects that you're visiting a strip club, there are probably easier ways to check. I mean, if you keep turning up at three in the morning, sort of smelling of booze and cheap perfume, then that's Call kind this of... guy Anthony and he'll figure it out for you. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a giveaway. But it, it does make people worry. And I guess the the worry is that a lot of this data, as we said at the start, is very useful. It, and it's not limited to things, you know, it's not the New York tax example is a good one, but it's almost anything you can think of. Genomic data, you can work backwards from quite easily. Um, location data from mobile phones, people love that stuff because it, it gives you an idea of how, you know, a city works in real time. You almost get to see the heartbeat of the city. The worry is that more as more and more of these kind of entertaining stories come out, people might get more and more reluctant to you know, sign away their personal data if they don't believe that it's it's really anonymous. Or the people who are already holding it will be more nervous about releasing it in, in any form, yeah. anonymized or otherwise. Yeah. I guess the, the, the question is how, I mean, how to fix this? This is, a, this is a monotonically increasing problem if everybody continues to do four square check-ins and give away their location and, you know, get pictured by PAPS and, and the whole business. How to fix it? So the problem in a narrow sense isn't new. Governments have been collecting census data for a long time. And when you have one big lump of data by itself, like a census, you can use statistics to work out out how much you can give away at any one time. You, you can work out the minimum number of pieces of information that's necessary to identify someone and make sure you never give that. The problem, as you said, comes with the fact that this stuff is now everywhere and, and, and you can cross-check it. So there are various things you can do. The problem is all of them involve trade-offs. So one of them is you can basically muddy the data. You can smear it around. You can introduce some error, some noise, so that you're, say, for the New York example, the taxi locations aren't accurate. You know, you add some random discrepancy to them so that it's much harder to tie the trips to you know, individual people. Or but, just change the precision, I suppose. You, could, you don't have to have it to the nearest meter. You could just have it to the nearest 50. Right, exactly, yeah. The problem with that, though, is that it makes the data less useful, right? So it's just it's, it's a straight-up trade-off. It's, you protect the privacy a bit more, it's less useful to the researchers. So that's kind of one almost purely mathematical solution to the problem. But there are other ones, right? I've heard of something called differential privacy, for instance, and, and there are others. Yeah, so, so there is this idea of differential privacy, which is a sort of more statistically fancy way of, of messing around with noise. There are other things you can do. So um, some people hope that encryption might save you. With a whole bunch of fancy mathematics, you can set it up so that the researchers can query an encrypted database of, of information and it never needs to be decrypted for them to work on it. So all they ever see is a bunch of gobbledygook, and yet somehow the gobbledygook results in them getting the answer that they want. Most of the people who are thinking about this are thinking about it in the abstract, and a lot of the time with these things, it feels like it takes, you know, one or two or five or six or ten or twenty really sort of big catastrophic breaches that actually have serious consequences for people in the real world before we have an idea of just where we want to strike that balance. Well, I, I look forward to talking to you about that when it happens, I guess. Thanks for that, Tim, and thanks also, Karen Preet. Well, that's all we have time for this week. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... 
partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.